with you. All right, so let's see. Are you ready? Happy birthday. We got one. There we go. There we go. Give a round of applause. Okay. Or Merry Christmas, but not that. <laughs> something Merry. <laughs> There's something. No, we're not going to do that. Um, jingle Bell. Okay, you guys are killing it. Stanford did not do this well. This one's super simple. Simple. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Impressive. Candace in the back. She, she's getting high fives for it, so she got it. All right, well, you guys are going to completely ruin my introduction. Uh, but the Stanford study, they were only able to get 2.5% of those right. So they did actually 120 songs, and they thought they were able to get 60 of them right. Maybe they're not as good of a drummer as me. Um, they only got three. Three of those songs right. And the question is why is because when the listeners can't actually hear the tune, some of you guys have played games like this before, and you're like, how are you not getting it? You have the tune in your head. It's hard for the people there unless, again, we have such a great drummer leading you. Um, unless you actually hear the tune, it's just a bunch of disconnected taps. It's like this bizarre Morse code, and you're like, some of y'all are like, yep, I didn't get it. <laughs> And so today, I want us to see that if we read the Old Testament without reference to Jesus, it's just a bunch of disconnected taps. And you go, I think I've heard that song. That sounds eerily familiar. Something about Moses. David, okay. And you're going, what is going on here? And you just read and you're like, I don't know what, why this matters to me, but this is a good story. And so what I want us to see here is that, is that when we see that everything is actually pointing to Jesus, that when he is the center of everything, he's, he's what all the Old Testament is building towards, then we can actually hear the melody of Scripture. We can actually hear the tune of Scripture and the song of Scripture of what it's actually about. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word and to, to hearing the song of Scripture? We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 through, all the way through chapter 7, but I'm sparing you, and we're only going to look at verses 6, 8 through 7, 1, and verse uh, 54 through 8, 1. So if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back free, please take them, and Mo is going to come on up here and read scripture for us. Let me give you my And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and all of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they would not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they steered up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the, this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with, the, with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at his feet of a man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. Uh, I need you this morning, Lord. Uh, and so, Lord, your, your word is, is, is honey to our lips. And, Lord, may it may be true this morning that it would be something sweet to us. And so, Lord, would you comfort those here that may be afflicted? Uh, and likewise, would you afflict those that might be comforted? Uh, and so, Lord, would you speak powerfully, mightily through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to Mosaic. Welcome to the book of Acts. We are going through this study. We call it We Are Church. And um, what we have seen even just a few weeks ago is that so far in the book of Acts, we're seeing that this is not a prosperity gospel type book. Uh, this is not health and wealth. Everything's going to go better once you become a Christian type uh, book. Um, because uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we saw that very clearly, and then today, it, it flies directly in the face of that. Uh, and as we see, we're about to have a man named uh, Stephen be the first martyr of the Christian church. And so our three points for us this morning, this very chipper sermon, are you will be maligned, you will be misinterpreted, and you will be mistreated. God's people will be maligned. They will be misinterpreted, and then they will be mistreated. And that's not always a bad thing. And so this passage kicks off with Stephen as the new deacon. I remember last week we, we, we installed new deacons in the book of Acts. It was the first time. And so we had this group of deacons being installed, and Stephen was the very first one. And he's going off and he's preaching sermons, doing these great and wondrous works. He's actually bringing the kingdom back to his Gentile-speaking Jews. Remember that was the division that happened last week? And so he's trying to share the good news up the flagpole, trying to reach his people. And what happens is instantly they malign him. Instantly they, they say false and unkind words about him. Verse 8 says he's full of grace and power, doing great and wondrous signs that they couldn't refute. And they couldn't. They couldn't, they couldn't match with him. Verse 9 says that the people of the synagogue of the freedmen, which was the people who once were slaves uh, of the Romans during Pompey's uh, conquest of Judea, and they've just been recently emancipated, or maybe just their children. And so there's this group of people called the freedmen. They're now debating with Stephen, and, and they really said that we can't debate with them. We can't match wits for wits with them. They really have no answer. And so what happens when someone does, isn't able to say anything actually negative about you? They slander you. And so in verse 11, secretly instigated men to say things about him. 
I mean, how many of y'all, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of y'all have had someone say some unkind and untrue words about you? You just nod that head. How many of y'all have ever had someone say something that, 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 that you know, they've twisted your actions that could have been taken a very positive light, but have taken it very negatively? And you're like, how did you take it that way? I mean, it's one thing if someone says something like that to you on Twitter. You're like, okay, <laughs> trolls just trying to make me angry. But it, it hurts when it's people you know, when it's people that know you well. It, it, it makes you want to stay up all night arguing with them in your brain. Going to bed, waking up, saying, I wish I could have said this. And Stephen, Stephen is going back to his Greek-speaking Jews, and they instantly malign him. And they say things like, he's changing what Moses delivered to us. They, they say he never ceases to speak against the temple. But one thing is clear here is that they, they said they are getting people to lie. Against him. So this isn't true. This isn't what Stephen's trying to promote. He's not saying this. There are people lying on the witness stand. And then two, in verse 15, it says that he has a face like an angel. <laughs> Which is an odd statement. You think pretty angel. Really what it's trying to say is that he was glowing. He, he had been in the presence of the Lord. And so that when he, just like Moses, came down from the presence of the Lord, he had this glow about him because he had been with God. And so when they're saying he is speaking against the temple and speaking against, against Moses' laws and really speaking against God, he's saying, but I've actually just been with God. Who's speaking against who? And so the glory of Yahweh was rubbing off on him. And so you, you will be maligned, but you'll also be misinterpreted. And, and sometimes we can be unclear with our communication, and that's, that's important for us to work on, but many times... Misinterpretation flows from hatred. I'll say that again. Misinterpretation flows from hatred. Just like we said before, you can look at the same data points and come, from and come to two very different conclusions about that same data. And so that misinterpretation comes from a hatred of them. And so they're saying, they're, they're, they're saying you're promoting the, these terrible things. They're, they're saying, verse 1, the high priest is asking, which is probably Caiaphas still, saying, is this true? Are you promoting the destruction of the temple and doing away with the law of Moses, which is very similar charges that were held against Jesus, right? That I will tear down this temple and three days rebuild it, right? And saying he's, he's getting a charge with a similar thing. And then we get the very longest speech in the book of Acts which is important for us to go home and read this afternoon. But maybe not right in this service right here for time's sake. But it, it's not necessarily a sermon, though it, it kind of comes off as a sermon. It's really, the, the, it's a courtroom setting. And so it's a defense. It's a defense of his character and of who he is because he's defending against the grievances that were thrown against him. And so instead of answering their questions directly, is this true of you? He doesn't just say yes or no. He then retells the story of scripture to them, which is just ironic, because he, he says, okay, high priest, who've studied the scriptures for your whole life, let me retell the stories of scripture to you, who, who you have the, the books of the, the Bible memorized, let me, let me, let me recapture this to you, because at the heart of their questions, their question is a misinterpretation of scripture, not a misinterpretation of Stephen. 
Right? It, it's, a, it's a misinterpretation of what God's word actually says. It's not what Stephen's saying. It, it's a misinterpretation of, of, of the word. And so that's the big question that they're trying to figure out. Their big question is, where is God? Where is God? Is, it, is he not located in the temple? And if you're against the temple, then therefore you're against God. That, that's their thinking. He's in the temple. That's clear. And if you're against the temple, you're against God. And so therefore, we will stone you. And so first he gives his evidence. He makes his case from the patriarchs. He goes to the, all, the, the, the fathers of the Old Testament. He starts with Abraham. And he says, okay, well, let's see, where is God? He, said, he shows how God's presence was with Abraham. He was with him as he voyaged through the lands. He was with him as, as he, he taught, taught the truths of, of, of who Yahweh was to his children. He was with him when he gave the promise of circumcision, which was a sign and seal that, of their need for a savior. And so God was with them then. And so the question is, okay, clearly God's with them, and they didn't have a temple. Somehow God made a way on earth. Somehow he managed to find his way onto this earth that he created without a temple. And then he goes to, he goes to Joseph in verse 9. He says very clearly God was with him. He was with him when he was in Egypt. Which you can say he was in, with God in Egypt is a lot like saying like God's in Arkansas. Like, whew. God would make it in Arkansas? Sorry if you're from Arkansas. <laughs> Sorry, Catherine. <laughs> uh, I could just make everyone angry and start picking a bunch of states that I don't like. Um, <laughs> but that, that, that's, the, that's the thrust here. That, that they're, they're, they're like, Egypt is the place where we were, we were enslaved. That, that's the place where we were enslaved. And he's making the argument that God was with them in Egypt. His presence was with them there. And then he retells the great story of Moses being born and, and raised in Egyptian royalty, right? But God was still there. And then he manifests himself very clearly without a doubt that God's presence was there. In verse 30, we have the, the episode of the burning bush. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness. This is verse 30 of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Right there in Gentile territory. Holy ground for the sole reason that God manifested himself there. And so even here today, as we're in this elementary school, is this the house of Yahweh? The same place where they serve nachos and chili dogs and there may be gum under your seat? There's not even a toilet seat on one of the bathrooms over there. Is this the house of the Lord? And we say wherever God's people is, are, wherever God's people are, is where God is. And so that's why we say we are church. The church isn't a box that you can confine God into, that we are the church, that you and I are the church. And so this is a powerful thing, but it doesn't make sense to the people there. That does not make sense to them. That, that to people in the Sanhedrin, that they're stuck on the tapping, right? They're, they're just hearing the disconnected taps. They're going, I, I, I'm not getting it. I've heard that God's in a temple, so you're going to take the temple, I'm going to take you out. 
right? This, this, they're, they're not hearing the melody. They're thinking, we had a tent. We had ceremonial washing. We had God's Shekinah glory, right? We, we had a pillar of smoke that would lead us during, during the day and, and this pillar of fire that would lead us in the night. I mean, we had, we had a tent. We had the tabernacle. We had Moses. And Stephen's re- rebuttal is, oh, you mean that Moses? You mean, you mean the one our fathers wouldn't listen to? You mean the one who, went up, when he came, to, came down from the mountain, you had already made a golden calf? That's the one you're talking about, you're, you're so proud of. And then he quotes some of the prophets in verse 43. He's like, speaking of tents, if you love your tents so much, you took up the tent of Moloch, which was the god where they would commit child uh, 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 sacrifices to. And he says, and you had the star god of Raphan, which is Saturn. You worshipped Saturn. <laughs> He's he's going after them right now. And so he's saying, don't talk about your preferred status since you squandered it. You didn't even listen to Moses. But what about the temple? What about God's holy place? We built a temple. And it makes me think of an office episode. (laughs) Clearly. Michael says, did I hear preach off that? Do more office references. <laughs> Michael says to Pam, I can't talk, I'm saving the planet. And, he, and he's nervously moving trash around. And Pam says, oh, oh, we don't recycle. And he says, we don't? Well, why have I been separating the trash into whites and colors? <laughs> to which she replies, I'm sure no one asked you to do that. <laughs> and Michael throws the garbage on the floor and says, eight years wasted. Eight years. <laughs> It's as if God has said, I'm sure no one's asked you to build this temple. (laughs) I asked you to have a a kingdom that came from David. This this eternal kingdom. I didn't ask you to build this. Or I think of an older movie called Rushmore. Has anyone ever seen that? And there there are these these guys who are trying to impress this teacher who had this nice little aquarium with some fish in it. And so they say, let's go all out. And let's build this huge aquarium. Let's make this, they pour millions of dollars into it. And at the ribbon cutting ceremony, the teacher doesn't even show up. And they meet with her and they're, and they're like, and, and one of them says, you know, that really hurt us that you didn't meet with us. And she says, well, you know, I never asked anyone to build me an aquarium. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, Solomon himself saw this in 1 Kings 8. He says, no temple made with hands could house the God of heaven. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. And that must, must have been a very awkward dedication service. That was at the dedication service of the temple. Well, just so we're clear, God actually can't live in here. I got to imagine all the workers are going, what have we been doing? Spent years to build this thing. Why did we do this? And Stephen says it in verse 48, says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The earth is his footstool. That's the God we worship. That we say, show us your glory. That's the glory of our Father. And Stephen's misinterpreted because they don't understand that you can't imprison God in an ornamented cage like the temple. 
The true God is not static. He's not localized, but he is with his people. And so the church building is itself not holy because our God is a pilgrim God and he's always on the move. He's always going with you. Even when you leave this building, he's going with you. And so, but I'm not sure anyone told Stephen something. I'm not sure someone told Stephen that he's actually the defendant because he, he's really on the offensive. And he's about to go full-blown offensive and offensive here in a second. And so instead of being the defendant, he becomes the lawyer in verse 51. Verse 51, it says, you stiff-necked people. That's how I'm going to start all my emails to you. <laughs> Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. I mean, y'all, this is, this is like epic rap battle type stuff right here. <laughs> he is going at them, you stiff-necked people. You didn't just circumcise part of you. You circum and cut off your eyes and your ears too. Who did you not kill? I mean, he is going at them when you would think he would be a little more gentle and, 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 and politically correct here. He's saying, no, that we, we're teaching nothing new here. This is something that we, our fathers, have been a part of for history. We're teaching nothing new that the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, who is the God who sent Jesus, there is, there is one plan of salvation. There is one story of salvation. And you, by killing Jesus, have fallen in line with a long line of hard and rebellious hearts. And so what do they do? They mistreat him. And I don't know if you know how this happens when someone's stoned. What they do is this. They walk the person up to a, to a high place, which they say is about two stories. And the witness, the person who witnessed, who was the witness in the trial... Not the judge, not an executioner. The witness is the one who becomes the executioner and pushes them off this high place. And then the second witness would then help them move a giant stone onto them. You think about that if the modern court trials, that the witnesses are the ones who are doing the execution. And so if they, if they didn't die from the fall, if they didn't die from that heavy stone that came on them, then it was an all-out bloodbath. And anyone and anyone there would take off their cloaks and they lay it at the feet of someone to protect it and they would grab any stone that's nearby and they just start slinging rocks. I mean, it's a, it's a brutal way to go. But notice in our passage here, this particular case, who they lay those cloaks at. Do you notice who that was? They lay their cloaks down at a guy named Saul, who's overseeing this execution, who's overseeing the murder of this Christian, who's speaking the word. And this guy, Saul, ends up writing half of the New Testament. Something about his death strikes Saul there. It plants a seed that we'll, we'll, we'll come to see later. And in the midst of this, Stephen says in verse 60, Lord do not hold this sin against them. I mean, how does he say it? I mean, how does he offer them forgiveness while he's being murdered? I mean, that, that's scandalous. 
I mean, that's radical violence, meaning radical grace. And this verse right here actually turns this whole passage around where he's, he's not recounting the story of Israel as, as trying to put bullets in the chamber to, to blast them with. He's recounting this and not saying, I'm just trying to malign your character. He's saying, yes, you're stiff-necked. Yes, you're rebellious. Yes, you're tone-deaf. But I'm telling you this because I love you. And I want better for you. I want better for you. And, and how do you do that if you're the one who's being, if someone's trying to murder you? How do you love your enemy like that? How do you love someone who's mistreating you, maligning you, and misinterpreting you? How can you offer them mercy when all they want is what's bad for you? How do you want something good for them? How do you believe the best in them and say, I love them, even though they hate me? Well, one thing my, one of my mentors told me when I was out in North Carolina, he says, Slim, you cannot love anyone you think you're better than. Which it just crushed me. Because <laughs> at that point, I thought I was better than some people. You cannot love anyone that you think you're better than. Think about that. How are you able to love someone that you look down on? How are you able to love them when you think them worse or less than you? If I live my life differently, if I was raised differently, if I feel like I'm better, what that's really doing is keeping me from actually understanding grace. It's keeping me from believing one of our core tenets, that we are saved by grace alone. Because if I think I'm better than you in some area, then I've, somehow I've, raised a level, I've been raised to a level where I'm more savable. Versus I'm, I, I'm dead in my sins, and I don't know how or why God saved me, but he saved me. And I've been only saved by grace alone. It's not by any good thing inside of me. And so if I believe I'm better than someone, there's, there's a part of me that actually believes that I've earned it. And so if we can see them in such a light that these people, these enemies that we've been praying for, are our equals. That we're equally broken and equally far from our Savior. Then, then, you, then to do that, you're going to have to see what Stephen saw. In verse 55, it says, He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Everywhere else in Scripture, when it talks about Jesus going to heaven, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And for some reason, he's standing right here. And that's important. Why is he standing? Because just as we are in a courtroom scene right here with Stephen about to be murdered, there is another courtroom scene going on. And F.F. Bruce says, while Stephen is defending Jesus to his hearers, Jesus is defending Stephen to the Father. Hmm. That Jesus is defending you and me to the Father saying, Lord, don't come down on them because of what I've done for them. Here's what we must see. That as Stephen is going to his death with, with rocks coming at his eyes, Stephen's able to love because he knows he's been loved. And he's currently in the arms of his Savior. And so when Jesus died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It helps us reread the story in a whole new light, because there's just a, a huge echo going on from what Jesus did to what Stephen is doing here. Because when we've read the story about Stephen, we, we can get enraged by the injustice. How could they murder Stephen when you and I would also would say, 
We are guilty of murdering God's son. Jesus was murdered unjustly and goes to the cross praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so this whole scene is this echo, this echo of mercy and justice coming together. And I want us to, I want us to see very clearly that our God is a God of both. He's of mercy and justice. That God doesn't ever quit being just. He's, it, there's a, the, Greek, there, the Hebrew word there is, is, is mishpah. It's this, this, this term of, of making things right. And so, so it's, not, it's not charity to care for the poor. It's justice. It's making things right. It's not charity. It's not charity to, to, to be part of, of, of loving people well. It's justice. It's to make right what's been wrong. And there's also making right what's been wrong when someone's been murdered unjustly. And so for God to still be just, when Jesus is murdered, something has to happen. And the only way that Jesus' death is just or right is if Jesus takes on every single one of our sins onto him. And so that he, 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 he tucks all of our sin tightly into his body so that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's the greatest sinner this world has ever seen. Because he's got your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin and my sin all tightly wrapped into him. So he's the most egotistical, narcissistic person this world has ever seen. He's the greatest murderer the world has ever seen. And so that's why God's wrath came pummeling down on him. And that's why it's just that Jesus died. Because he became sin. And God eradicated it. He didn't just die in general hoping people would believe. He paid for sins. And this is what they're not hearing. They're still just hearing the tapping. They're still just hearing disconnected dots, not understanding the music of this, that Jesus is what all the Old Testament sacrifices were pointing towards. He's the truer temple and the truer sacrifice. And so justice and forgiveness are joined at the hip so that you and I are mistreated. And I want to say hallelujah, we're mistreated. Hallelujah, I'm not getting justice. We should actually have justice poured down on us that we should be stoned. We should have the wrath of God fall on us, but it's by grace that we're mistreated. Isn't that beautiful? It's by grace that God's wrath doesn't fall on us. And so if, if God would treat us as we deserve, then we'd all just be eradicated. But we are, we are not because Jesus got the justice. Jesus received it full and paid so that we get the forgiveness and grace and mercy. And this doesn't absolve people of their crimes. Uh, I, I think it's a terrible evil. We want to make sure we see that. A terrible evil has been perpetrated against Stephen and Jesus. But we're still for justice. We're still for making things right in this world. We're not trying to weaponize forgiveness and make people just say, yes, yeah, forgive and forget. No. Let's, let's, keep, let's keep justice as high of a priority as it is. Let's not cheapen it and remind ourselves that it's evil. That Stephen lost his family, that they lost their son, they lost a brother. It is evil what was done to him, and that's what makes grace so scandalous. That can we forgive them? It doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world, but it makes sense in God's kingdom. And so how do I love my enemy? It's got to be otherworldly grace. I, I can't do it unless Jesus shows me how. And that he also has done it for me. And so how do I say, Father, forgive them? I think it's only when you can see that Jesus has said, forgive you. And so let me invite you to this today, brothers and sisters. Offering forgiveness and grace 
is not the easy way out. And if you've ever offered forgiveness and grace, you know that. It hurts. It's the hard work of loving someone. And so I say forgiving is not giving up. Don't see it as that. You are actually here. I'm saying, I'm not going to hold these crimes against you. I'm going to take them on myself. I'm sacrificing the justice that should be done. And I'm taking them on myself. And so press into the hard work of love. So when you've been maligned, when you've been misinterpreted, when you've been mistreated, you can know Jesus was too. And it's by that mistreatment that we're saved. It's, it's by him getting what we deserve that we get what he deserves. And so how could Stephen love these stiff-necked people? Because he knew he was one and he is one. And Jesus died for stiff-necked people. Let's pray.